Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Wendy. One less thing for me to trip over. Let me encourage you um, as you go through this week to consider praying with your eyes open. It was a little experiment in some senses in praying together, but as you walk through the week, as you go through the activities of this week uh, with eyes open, you know, invite God to reveal to you, um, how can I pray into this space? How can I pray into this relationship? How can I contribute into uh, what's happening here in a godly way? What I want to do this morning, though, to start with, though, is to tell you a story of a couple who were very, very given to hospitality uh, and loved to put on the most magnificent meals, feasts really. Uh, their, their hospitality and their finesse when it came to hosting and cooking and presenting the most delicious food became quite famous in the community, so much so that people considered it a great honour and privilege to be invited to go to their home. And so it happened on one occasion they invited three couples to come uh, and enjoy a meal with them and the couples responded affirmatively to the invitation, anticipating not only good food but good conversation, uh, a real night of um, enjoyment and fulfilment. Uh, and so on the appointed day, uh, the three couples uh, turned up at the house. Uh, they were invited into the lounge room uh, where they were seated as their hosts put the final touches on the meal that was being prepared for them. And then after just a few moments, the hosts came in and said, the meal is ready, would you like to come through to the dining room? And it was then that something untoward actually happened. The meal was there ready, prepared for the guests to enjoy, uh, but something inconceivable happened. The first couple who had come and had responded and were actually there ready to go stood up and said, look, we are really, really sorry, um, but we've just realised that, um, that we have forgotten to go to a supermarket, we won't name any supermarkets, because they've got 10 kilo buckets of Kalamata olives on special buys this week, and if we don't go now, uh, we're going to miss out. I'm really, really sorry to do this, but we're going to go. And with that, that couple actually turned and walked out of the house, leaving behind that meal. The hosts could hardly believe their ears because the guests had had all week to go to this supermarket to buy their 10 kilogram bucket of Kalamata olives and they watched dumbstruck as the two guests left as though getting 10 kilos of Kalamata olives was the most important thing in the world. But then something equally flabbergasting happened. The second couple were looking at each other and he was saying, I thought you did it. And she said, no, that was your job. No, it's not my job, it's actually yours. So you're the one who's, no, but I thought I saw you going over there. And they were having this argument and the guests just kept this banter going backwards and forwards to the point where eventually the guests realized that the hosts were watching and they said, oh, look, we have, we're really sorry, but we've forgotten to feed the goldfish. <laughs> And we're going to need to go home to do it because otherwise little Goldie might starve to death. And with that, inconceivably, the second pair of guests up and walked out of the house, leaving behind the banquet that had been prepared for them. The hosts were absolutely stunned at this turn of events. But as they watched in, uh, in mute silence, that's, that's an, we don't use those two words together. As they watched in silence, 
<laughs> the second couple took their leave, exited the door and abandoned the feast. And that left just one couple. Uh, and when the hosts turned towards them, sorry, I should have given you a picture of the goldfish. There's Goldie. Um, when, the, <laughs> when the hosts turned to this couple, not to put too fine a point on it, they only had eyes for one another. In fact, the attention that this couple was paying one another was almost embarrassing. And when um, the awkwardness became apparent, the guests noticed attention of their host. They kind of quickly buttoned up their shirts and straightened up their dishevelled clothing with only a hint of embarrassment and said, ah, look, perhaps we'd better be going too because things were getting pretty hot here and uh, we just don't want to go any further. Um, you never know what could happen in a moment like this. And so they upped and walked out, leaving the host with this table laden with the most delightful culinary offerings, totally without participating in it. Now that seems like a stupid story, doesn't it? But I tell you that story, and I hope you've never experienced anything like that, nor have you ever perpetrated anything like that. Um, but I tell you that story because it's eerily similar to the story that Jesus described in Luke chapter 14, the parable of the great banquets. And I told you that story with a purpose because we want to try and capture something of the offence that is caused by the guests who made excuses. The banquet was ready. The master sent out his servants to say, come, it's ready, and they proposed the most outrageously stupid set of excuses you've ever heard. We'll unpack those in a few moments. Uh, we've contemporized it a little bit with the story that I told you. Uh, it just doesn't wash, does it? What an offense it would be to behave like that. Let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you think of a banquet? What's the first thing that springs into your mind when we use the word banquet? I, if you're anything like me and I confess this, the first thing I think about is a table laden with all sorts of delicious goodies. You know, I think back to uh, when I was growing up at home, we often had uh, lunches for f extended family or whatnot. Uh, the word smorgasbord entered my vocabulary and I loved that word, <laughs> smorgasbord. It kind of means uh, you get to choose what you eat. When you're a kid, what it means is you can, how can I put this delicately, you can pig out. <laughs> That's not very delicate. Smorgasbord. What is it? You can have all sorts of goodies and there's all sorts of things that spring to mind. But, but actually, when we use the word banquet, that's the only, not the only thing that should spring to mind. Because uh, throughout history, um, banquets have been used to sort out social order as much as to nourish people physically. Think about that. If you even have a look uh, at the banquets that we see through the scriptures, banquets were special meals given to mark special occasions, weddings, military victories, uh, but they were much more than that. To receive an invitation to a banquet was a special honour, and if you received a banquet invitation, you were one of the in crowd. You knew that you'd made it. And there's a little bit of this dynamic works today, uh, perhaps not quite in the same way. Uh, and you may have had this experience where you're having a conversation with someone. I might be talking uh, to Christine and say, oh, have you been invited to Wendy's uh, 60th, 50th, well, 40th, sorry. Uh, <laughs> 
had, ha, have you heard, Wendy's, I'm going to Wendy's 40th, are you going? And, and Christine looks at me and says, oh, I didn't even know Wendy was having a 40th. That's awkward, isn't it? It's kind of this social sorting out that's going on in that space, and that's often what was happening in ancient times. There's a social dynamic that's going on, but it was not just the invitation that mattered. When you arrived at a banquet, when you arrived at this special function, the host would allocate seats according to things like social importance or your significance in the community or whatever. And that's treacherous, isn't it? Let me tell you a story that happened quite a few years ago. The Baptist Union of Victoria offers what we call Nourish Days twice a year where pastors from all over Victoria come together for a day of teaching and fellowship and worship and so forth. More often than not, uh, the guests, are, or the guest speakers at least, are from among our own number. Every now and again there'll be someone else. Um, but on one particular occasion, uh, let's jump to this one, um, Tony Campolo was going to be the guest speaker. Tony Campolo, for those who don't know, uh, is uh, an American sociologist, Christian guy. He's an internationally recognised speaker, written a number of books. And, and years ago, back in the 1990s probably, I'd read a number of his books. And so I knew about Tony Campolo and I was looking forward to hearing him speak. And we, uh, my friend Malcolm and I turned up from the Western District this day. We arrived at the church where the tables were set. And typically what the Baptist Union does is allocate tables and there were name tags on the table. So you know where you're sitting. And wouldn't you believe it? This particular day I looked on, on the table, table number two, and there was my name and there was my name tag. And right beside me was the great man himself. Tony Campolo. And I said to Malcolm, look at this. Look who I'm sitting next to. I'm going to be able to dine out for years on the fact that I sat next to Tony Campolo. I made small talk with Tony Campolo for the whole day while he was not up the front talking. This is going to be fantastic. And I so much looked forward to be able to Skype to my friends, you know, I sat next to Tony Campolo. What a wonderful blessing it was and so on and so on. Uh, but then the day unraveled really badly. <laughs> Because um, Tony Campolo was there. I was this close to him. But he didn't come and sit at the table for the whole day. <laughs> he sat on a chair out the back with his, his notes, the, well, let's call them sermon notes, with his presentation notes going over those. He even sat on that chair with his lunch on his knees, not the easiest way to eat lunch, uh, on that. He didn't come and sit next to me for the whole day. My moment of glory was snatched away and I missed out. I went from being the envy of my peers to the ridicule of my peers for I would forever be known as the dude who almost sat next to Tony Campolo. And so at the end of the day, I ex I, I'll tell you this, I extracted my revenge. <laughs> Because when everyone had gone, when Tony Campolo had gone, when everything was being packed up, when the, when the waiting team were taking away the glasses, I picked up my name tag and put it in my pocket and I reached over and I grabbed Tony Campolo's name tag and I took it home with me. <laughs> and the very next day I went to my church and I said, look who I almost sat next to! <laughs> 
this is the story. Um, that Luke chapter 14 picks this up because um, Jesus was um, in an area of uh, the Middle East, Perea. I've indicated here on the map to give you an idea. He was in the home of a prominent Pharisee on the Sabbath in this region, we believe. There were lots of other guests there too, important people, in fact, a number of them, and probably they had gathered together and they were testing. And I think you can read this quite um, honestly into the text. They were watching this, this itinerant rabbi, Jesus. They were checking him out. What is he going to say? Uh, what does he believe? What is he teaching? And Luke tells us in chapter 14, verse 1, he was being carefully watched. And in the process, Jesus had um, noticed that as the guests had gathered, they jockeyed around for prime position. Uh, and in fact, he addressed the very issue that I have just spoken about. He said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say, give this person your seat. That would be embarrassing. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. That would be affirming. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, I'd love to spend some time drilling into this passage because uh, what Jesus is saying really clearly is uh, if you start from a place of humility, there's only one direction you can go, and that's up. If we adopt uh, a, 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 a humble attitude, we run no risk in the kingdom apart from being exalted. If you uh, jockey for position, then you will likely be embarrassed. There's some more teaching in this passage, and I'm going to skip over too because I want to get to the back end of this, uh, this parable. Uh, Jesus talked about generosity. Um, there was a commonly accepted social protocol, scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. And so in the context of this passage, Luke 14, verse 13, Jesus said, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus is kind of flagging. Uh, actions now have consequences later on. And this actually prompted a rather interesting statement. I wonder actually whether there had been a moment of awkward silence in this gathering as Jesus was teaching this very uncomfortable, um, this uncomfortable teaching about humility and generosity. Uh, and one of the guests there probably changed the subject or may have been teaching, uh, testing Jesus rather, uh, by saying, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. It's kind of like in a way, a statement to break the awkwardness of the silence or the awkwardness of the moment. You know, let's talk about something else, shall we? Something less confronting, a little more comfortable uh, and pick up this idea. Now, this idea, um, this feast at, in the kingdom of God is important. So let's talk about this for a moment. This idea of what we call a messianic banquet. It's the idea, and it actually comes from the book of Isaiah, 
In fact, let's have a look at uh, what Isaiah actually said about this. At the end time, something special will happen as God brings his kingdom to its inauguration, as things uh, are wound up at the end by God. These are some of the things that will happen. Isaiah describes them uh, by introducing it in Isaiah 25, verse 1. He says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. And here it is. Uh, verse, whoops, whoops, not too far. Uh, verses 6 to 8 in Isaiah 25. Remember, this is 700 years before Jesus. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all nations. Isaiah's foreseeing, he's, he's prophesying there will be a time when God brings his kingdom to its fullness. It will be a banquet for all nations, all people, all ethnic groups. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all nations, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. What a wonderful promise. You know, there's this great banquet that God's inviting his people to participate in. Something glorious, something joyful, something wonderful. Something to look forward to. 700 years before Jesus came. In that time gap, the Jewish people had developed some ideas that, uh, that kind of changed how Isaiah might be understood. The, uh, the Jews had... Um, uh, sorry, let me just back up a little bit. Um, Isaiah, this is important actually, Isaiah is actually prophesying a time uh, when all people will be gathered together. There will be no one asked, what are you doing here? Because both Jews and Gentiles will be gathered in one place. One of the very strange experiences I had very early in my ministry, in fact, it was probably within the first couple of months from memory, uh, when I was, was a brand new minister. I didn't even have a suit yet, which says I hadn't had a funeral to conduct yet. Uh, so it was very early in my time. I received an invitation from the city council to a civic reception for the Governor General of Australia. Can't remember which one. Um, I could look it up. And so I bought a suit because <laughs> you need to look your best for the Governor General. And I turned up at this place with my invitation in my pocket. It was, um, I can't even remember where it was. But anyway, uh, that's not important. Turned up, I didn't know a, a person there. I was new in town. And so I decided to approach this problematic kind of event um, with an extroversion that's not normal for me. I thought to myself, I am just going to barge right on in there. I'm going to introduce myself to anyone and everyone and, and let them know who I am and what I'm doing and so on. And so I did that. And the first person was standing over there by themselves. I went, hi, my name's David Hodgins. I'm the new Baptist minister in town. Who are you? And they told me. Then there was two people. It's, it went social awkwardness when two people are talking together. How do you bust in there? Well, I didn't care about that. Just get in there. And... Uh, so I did that, and here's something I learned very, very quickly, and that is that people were a little surprised that I was there. <laughs> You're from the church? Oh, really? Oh, fancy that. <laughs> I ran into the CEO of the city, the head honcho of the city council. 
He was a fairly bullish sort of a guy. And he all but said to me, why are you here? <laughs> and, and now, 20 years later, if I was living that time again, I would say to him, no, he asked me, how did you get an invitation into this? <laughs> now I would say, I forged it. <laughs> <laughs> Just to see what he'd do. But in those days, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> It was very, very obvious in that space, in that I'd, I'd gone into a well-established network. It was the local members, it was the councillors, it was the leaders of the business, it was the guy who owned the abattoir, it was the person who was the CEO of the Water Authority. It was, it was a well-established network, they all knew each other, and I was kind of like that, that random atom that was just coming in amongst this, this gathering of people. It was really, really difficult. The question, what are you doing here, uh, was a really, really valid one in that space. And when Jesus uh, was teaching here in the New Testament, uh, backing back to the book of Isaiah, things had changed. You see, Isaiah said when this great messianic banquet happens, the invitation will be for everyone, but the Jews had actually refined that. There's a couple of um, examples of how much they had refined it. One of them is found in the Jewish Targum. Now, the Jewish Targum, uh, this is a little complicated. The Jewish Targum is like a commentary on the Aramaic Old Testament. So if you can imagine the Old Testament, the Hebrew was translated into Aramaic. The Targum was kind of like a commentary or an amplified version of that. The Jewish Targum actually said this. Um, it conceded that there would be people of other nations at the Messianic banquet, but it would be a plague for them, a plague from which they could not escape and they would be ashamed. So it's not a celebration for Gentiles, it would be a plague for the Gentiles. That's how Isaiah had been reinterpreted in the Jewish Targum. The second century, a document known as the Book of Enoch um, was, uh, was published, or was around, I shouldn't say published. Um, it said, actually, the Gentiles will be at the great messianic banquet. Good news, right? Yes. Absolutely. But so would the angel of death. <laughs> and the angel of death will smite the Gentiles with his sword bad news but it got worse and this is probably why the book of Enoch is absolutely not in the canon of the scripture um, because the believers would have to and this is I'm not making this stuff up uh, the angel of death would smite the Gentiles believers would actually have to wade through the blood and make their way through the gore of all these body parts to be able to sit at the banqueting table kind of makes you want to lose your appetite right <laughs> a reinterpretation of what Isaiah said about the Messianic banquet, the Qumran community. The Qumran community, of course, is famous for the Dead Sea Scrolls. That community um, believed that uh, there would uh, not be any Gentiles present at this Messianic banquet, neither would there be anyone with any kind of physical deformity, abnormality, any sickness, any disease, anything like that. And so in the years between Isaiah and when Jesus came, the idea of the Messianic banquet had been significantly reinterpreted. So you can see there's a trick behind the question or the statement that this guest at the feast uh, that made, you know, blessed is the one who sits at the table at the Messianic banquet. Who is it going to be? Who's got the ticket? 
And Jesus responded with a parable. We come to this parable this morning. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he said to his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now that kind of makes sense. If you think about it from a Middle Eastern perspective, you invite people to a banquet. It takes time to prepare a banquet. It takes effort to prepare a banquet. You can't say come at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning because no one wears watches. And so it makes good sense that he made the invitation, the guests responded to the invitation, and then at the time when the banquet was ready, it might have taken less time than he anticipated, more time, doesn't matter, because he was to send his servant who went out and said, now's the time to come, you ready? Let's go, it's all happening. And then uh, they are, in some senses, metaphorically in the lounge room waiting to be invited in. But we come to verse 18, the very familiar passage, uh, but they all began to make excuses. The first one says, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Put up your hand if you've ever bought a house sight unseen. Okay, that's pretty much what I expected. It's an unusual thing to do that. I'd love to talk to you later and <laughs> to see what was going on there. It happens, and perhaps it happens more nowadays, and the competition of housing is so much higher. But it's very, very unusual for someone to go and buy a house and, and then say, um, oh, I better go and have a look. In fact, let, let's just posit this idea. Uh, you've been invited out to lunch today, some of you, perhaps, hospitality. We'll talk about that. Uh, it, it would be kind of unbelievable if you went to your host and said, look, I'm really sorry. While David was rattling on this morning, I was on realestate.com and I saw this fantastic, and I've bought it. I'm going to go and have a look at it now, so I won't be able to come to lunch. Really? Is that ever likely to happen? It's inconceivable in a, in a Middle Eastern context where land was so sought after, where you took into account all of the nuances of the direction of the sun and the drainage of the field and the neighbours and all that sort of stuff, that you would buy a piece of land without looking at it. This excuse just does not add up. The second excuse there, we see another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Now, I wonder if there's anyone here who's bought a car sight unseen. Diana will tell you this story. I'm not going to extrapolate on it, but there was one occasion where, uh, and it was a, it's a funny story, uh, where someone said, look, I'm selling my car. Would you like to buy it? And I said, yes. And I went and told my wife, I've just bought a car. Well, things were a little bit <laughs> awkward for a moment, but it was a good car. <laughs> Who would buy five yoke of oxen without testing them out first? You've got to make sure that they are healthy. You've got to make sure that they pull at the same rate together. You've got to make sure you've got a leader and all that kind of stuff. Is this a reasonable excuse? It's a load of rubbish. And then the third one, uh, this one's a little bit open to interpretation. Another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Uh, the Hebrew actually allows for the fact for him to say, um, I've got a woman in the house in the bedroom. I'm kind of busy. <laughs> now, even if we put that aside, that may be speculative. Uh, getting married doesn't absolve you from, from social responsibilities doesn't change the dynamics of, of community relationship. Uh, it's, it's inconceivable again uh, what's happened. So what is the master to do? What does God do when those he's invited to his banquet refuse to attend? That's the critical question. 
we read on, verse 21. Whoops. I, sorry, I'm jumped around a bit. Let me um, just go back. Um, let's just go back to thinking about these excuses for a second because... As Jesus was telling this story, uh, the people who were listening would have been aghast. They would have just, they would have had the same kind of reaction that you had. And, and the story that I told at the start of this message this morning was kind of a little bit in jest. But if it was real, you'd be going, seriously? And I'm pretty confident the people who were listening as Jesus was telling this story would have been saying, seriously? That sort of stuff just does not what the, the offence caused by these guests is immense. They've made a spectacle, a public spectacle of the banquet host. And here perhaps it is worth just stopping and making an uncomfortable applica application because we don't often talk about how gravely offensive sin is to God, do we? We often talk about the implications of our sin. We often talk about God's love and his patience and his grace and his mercy, and appropriately so, because we find that demonstrated abundantly in this passage. But it might be good for our souls from time to time to stop and just think about the manner in which our rebellion, our chasing after our own agenda offends God. And I come back to this passage, um, which we will come to in Genesis chapter five, uh, 6, very early in the scripture, where the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? We don't reflect on that very often. God's heart is filled with pain whenever his people turn their backs on him. So what does the master do? Let's come back to that question. What does God do when those he has invited to the banquet refused to attend. Well, the servant came back and reported to the master. Then the owner of the house, the owner of the house became angry. How will this owner respond? How will the master respond? The pitiful excuses of the guests have generated anger. And you know, anger generates energy, doesn't it? Anger gives us, you know, the adrenaline running through the system. And so anger generates a whole heap of energy. What's going to happen with this anger that has been generated by injustice? Well, the master in the parable has every right to retaliate. Uh, he could verbally insult the guests who have shamed him like that. He could find some way of extracting vengeance on them. He could perhaps put up signs around town telling people what miserable so-and-sos they were. He might uh, undercut them in business. He might sow rumours or falsehoods. He could do all sorts of stuff. Let's stick it to those guests who have publicly shamed me. That's something he might have said to his servant, but he doesn't do this. We read on in the story. What does the master do? The owner of the house ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, now that's an interesting statement, the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame, because remember the Qumran community said, nobody 
with any of those afflictions would be welcome at the banquet table of the Messiah. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. The master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Rather than vengeance, the owner of the house reprocesses his anger and turns it into grace. That's an important quality of God's character, isn't it? But it's not grace that simply overlooks offence or grace that says, look, it doesn't matter or pretends that the offence never happened. It's grace which allows those who refused to come to the banquet to live with the consequences for themselves. If that's your choice, that's your choice. The owner doesn't punish them. He instead turns his benevolence to others who, it is implied in the parable, come and enjoy the banquet. Those who made their excuses miss out. They've excluded themselves by their decision-making. Now, we could, um, we could spend a lot of time drilling into this and, and dive in so deep that we might end up drowning. But it's one of those occasions where we kind of need to hold some tension between the God who punishes sinners who reject him and rebel against him, and the scripture teaches that, with the fact that the choices that they make are the choices that they live with. It's these two kind of dynamics working together. It's interesting to think about that. Let's not dwell too much on that uh, for the moment. But at the very end of the parable, and I'm not sure whether I've got this verse up here or not. Let's have a look. Uh, Jesus changed the language from telling a story to talking to the people that he was with. And he said, I tell you, it's now in the plural, I tell you who I am gathered with. Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Yeah. Whose banquet? My banquet. Because in this moment, Jesus has shifted from telling a story about a master and guests and all that stuff to say, it's my banquet. Whose banquet? My banquet. Whose banquet? The messianic banquet. The banquet that God has planned and, and prophesied in the book of Isaiah. The banquet that will happen when I, when I bring all things together. And it's happening right now before your very eyes, Jesus said. It's the banquet that I'm inviting you to now. And those who reject me will not find a place at the table. It's a really significant statement because Jesus is actually talking to the people that he is with. The religious leaders who were gathered in that house, you're welcome to attend, Jesus said, but if you refuse to attend, then the banquet will be extended. The invitation will be extended to the outcasts, to the Gentiles. And while um, we could easily spin our application as we conclude this morning um, to a heavy word about making sure we don't miss out, uh, let's choose instead to uh, focus on something surprisingly obvious but often overlooked in Christian circles, and that is this. Jesus invites us to a banquet. Jesus invites us to a feast. It's a, a great sadness to me that throughout history, Christians have tended to become um, very, uh, how shall we say, austere, bland, you know, I've read stories, historical accounts of, of uh, you know, you've got to raise children so that they don't have any toys and no fun because good Christians, we don't play. 
In actual fact, God says, I'm inviting you to a feast. I'm inviting you to a banquet. I want you to experience joy in life. I want you to celebrate that which I've given to you. Why did we pray with our eyes open this morning? To see the world that God has created around us. Because there's so much good in our world around us. Yes, there's pain and yes, there's sorrow and grief and all that stuff. But the Holy Spirit's at work everywhere. Not just here in the church. He's at work in all sorts of places. Let's have our eyes open to see that. God's inviting us into a wonderful celebration and banquet throughout history there's been a type of Christianity that's sucked the life out of uh, out of people in, in, insisting on rigidity so much so I was reading this week the Roman Emperor Julian who lived many years ago he said these words and please excuse the expression he said those pale-faced flat-breasted Christians for whom the Sun shone but they never saw it you know these Christians who, who God's created all this beauty and they just so uh, so dead even the emperor saw it the sun shines but they never see the beauty of it what a terrible criticism of people who ought to be celebrating God's goodness and presence amongst us and so the challenge today really in the context the broader context of everything that we've done with this word and in our worship is to ask the question how do we actually celebrate God's banquet we're living in this time the the time is now the time is yet to be fully realized but God's at work now what does it mean now offer hospitality for someone today have some folks around for lunch. Go out and enjoy creation. Do something that brings life. Enjoy the experience of God's goodness. Live in that space. Do whatever you like as long as it's good and healthy and honours God. That's the message of the scripture. Let's enjoy this banquet that we have been invited into. This idea of the kingdom of God as a feast and gloomy Christians, that's a contradiction in terms shouldn't be like that. Let's take a moment to pray as uh, you reflect on what God might be asking you to do in response to that today. How do we live in that banquet space that Jesus has invited us into? Let's pray this time. You can have your eyes open or your eyes closed. I don't mind. <laughs> God, we do thank you uh, for this story again. Uh, and again, Lord, we're just so... Um, we're so overcome by the goodness of your word and the way the Old Testament, the New Testament sews together so meaningfully the prophecy of Isaiah predicting a time uh, years and years away from his experience when Jesus would come, when that messianic banquet would be a reality and Lord we live in that time. And so we pray, Lord, that you will, uh, we know that you have invited us to that table Help us to live in that place where we might enjoy your goodness in everything that you've given to us, in our worship, in our study, in our work, in our relationships, in our homes, in our recreation, in the challenges and the joys that we face. For you are at work in all those places. Lord, we thank you for that banquet that you have invited us to. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you continue to invite others, that the, there is room at your table. There will always be room at your table. And so even as we go about our work to invite others to, Lord, bless this, this time and this place we ask in your name. Amen.